0: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you end up characterizing humanity by one or two attributes, and in particular, intelligence, some people might feel afraid of being knocked off the top of the predator triangle, Mm. right? So you have the apex intelligence. What happens when something comes along that's a lot smarter than you?
1: Robots have always lived in our imaginations as symbols of the future, as denizens of domestic drudgery, as loyal companions, as more competent versions of ourselves, and as objects of terror that populate dystopian landscapes. These days, our world is populated by robots of one kind or another. (laughs) Automated utilitarian machines that, well, disappointingly, if you grew up watching 1980s television, don't look much like Marvin from The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy or Rosie from The Jetsons or The Terminator or whichever robot you might be thinking of. But robot building companies like Boston Dynamics in America, whose videos you might have seen online, are creating extraordinary machines with increasing autonomy that look as if they're straight out of our wildest dreams or nightmares. Welcome to Patented, a podcast about the history of inventions from History Hit. I'm your host, Dallas Campbell, and today I'm joined by Cambridge anthropologist, robot and AI expert, Beth Singler, to talk about our complex relationship with the robot, where they came from, where they're going, and why do they have such a powerful grip on our psyche. Resistance is useless. welcome to the show. I'm so excited. I'm really excited. You've got the best opening line in Wikipedia, I think.
0: Do I? I can't remember what it says now.
1: It says, <laughs> like, this is the Cree one. It says that you are a British anthropologist specialising in artificial intelligence. That's right. It says you're known for her digital ethnographic research on the impact of apocalyptic stories on the concept of AI and robots.
0: That's it.
1: Does that mean we get to talk about Terminator? And Absolutely.
0: It's written into every contract for everything I do.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Your research is so interesting. I've been following you for many years, and I'm always amazed at the like fascinating things you do. I'm always like, wow, that's amazing. Just explain a little bit about how you would describe yourself rather than Wikipedia.
0: So I have managed to get it in under a sentence into basically the tweet format. Basically, what I do is I think about what you think about machines that might think. God, that's good. That's my slogan.
1: That's good. What do I think about machines that might think then?
0: Well, I'm thinking about what you think about machines that might think. So we haven't quite okay. got there yet, but perhaps by the end of our conversation, <laughs> I'll know what you think as yeah, well. Yeah, well,
1: hopefully. It's such a massive topic, this. I've been struggling to know quite where to start with it all, mm. the history of robots. And did anyone invent the robot? Probably not. I get confused as well about what should we be talking about? Should we be talking about bodies or should we be talking about minds or should we be talking about kind of a combination of both? Mechanical people or AI, where does it all fit together? Uh,
0: Yeah, it's impossible to really unpick one from the other because our conception of what the artificial being could be contains both the mind and the body and our kind of Western conception of the dualism between one thing and the other thing in the same place. So yeah, it's very easy to get into a conversation that goes, you know, scary Terminator robots straight into AI playing games. there's, There's a quick slippage between our imaginations of the robot future and what's actually happening with the technology.
1: Yeah, I'm of a certain age. So when I think of robots, I have such a clear picture of, of robots from the 1970s and yeah. Doctor Who robot and, and such. Like, but I was sort of looking into it, and the idea of robots goes way back. Mm. I mean, Aristotle yes. kind of talked about robots, but not quite talked about robots, he but he talked about mechanical things doing things on their own. I think this is in sort of 300 BC. Or-
0: yeah, he talked about tools, tools with minds. Yeah. Basically, would replace, as there was, the slave class. He thought this might be a way into the future to, you know, take humans out of the equation almost if tools could have minds of their own.
1: Is he like the first? I mean, Aris, we always put Aristotle as kind of the first of everything. We always like to sort <laughs> start with Aristotle and move on. But I mean, do we? is there anything even earlier than Aristotle talking about this idea of mechanical yeah. people or tools or things? Absolutely.
0: I mean, our Greek myths, very hard to actually date origin of Greek myths, but sort of speculating around three and a half thousand years BCE, they're talking about Hephaestus being the god of creation, of engineering, of blacksmithing, was assisted by sort of bronze handmaidens in the stories we told about him at the mm. time. And this idea of sort of artificial workers has its origin much further back. But even in terms of practical applications of automated systems, you know, like 1400 BCE, the Babylonians were working on water clocks very simple technology, but this is the first step to automating a process. And that's Mm -hmm. the long line that leads up to the automata, the robots that we talk about today.
1: There is something specific about the idea of mechanical people, though. I remember watching it was it Jason and the Argonauts? And they have. I think it was Telos, the big bronze yes. man. and He's kind yeah. of crouching down and then he stands up. And as a child, I mean, I was absolutely, that was the kind of defining image, that and the skeletons running around. But it was such a defining image. And I wonder why we're so obsessed by the idea of mechanical people. Where yeah. does that come from?
0: I mean, you, you can trace various different themes. I think one of the dominant ones, whatever culture you're talking about, is this idea of creation in our image. So obviously that has sort of very specific Judeo-Christian, Abrahamic influences in that language. But in general, humans think about the idea of recreating themselves. We do it quite often by making children. And in a sense... I've
1: done it a couple of times. Well,
0: there you go. I've done it. Not robots. I've done once. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But there's this sense of we want to know what it is to make something like ourselves. Even if Mm. you just... take away all the religious connotations of that. what that means, we're interested in replicating what we see as some of our core essential attributes. So in particular, intelligence, when it comes to talking about artificial intelligence. But with robots, everything from the ability to make music, to dance, to perform, to serve, all these elements that we see humans as capable of, we're wondering if we can replicate them.
1: Is there a sort of hardwired, is it the fact that we have forethought, the fact that we're self-conscious, I suppose? You know, I always think about things like why we believe in gods and that kind Mm. of stuff. It's this idea of we're aware of our mortality, we are self-conscious, we project ourselves onto other people. Does it all stem from that?
0: I certainly think from an anthropological perspective, it is about replicating some of our attributes and being able to replicate those certainly comes from having a level of self-awareness, self-reflexivity and you know, that our narratives and our stories as well deal with this a lot, but our hubris, our pride in thinking we can make something just like ourselves and it be successful. And a lot of our stories about artificial beings run down this line of the dangers of what happens when we try to replicate in particular our intelligence or our capabilities and where that can go wrong.
1: We'll probably touch on that in a moment. I mean, obviously we think of things like Frankenstein Mm. and Mary Shelley, those sort of great novels and metropolis and things like that, which people may be familiar with. Mm. I, I, famously, the the idea of, well, certainly when I was a kid growing up, the whole point about a robot was like, they did stuff for you yes. so you wouldn't have to. <laughs> like that was. I remember in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, there was Marvin, the robot was, and there was a, your plastic pal who's fun to be with. Yes. It was a companion. Mm. It was a slave. That was the, it sort of took the pressure off Having to undo the dishwasher. <laughs> um, undo the dishwasher? Empty the dishwasher. <laughs> empty the dishwasher we- Didn't really happen though.
0: No, I mean, there's back as far as the early 1900s, there's accounts in newspapers talking about the forthcoming robot revolution that will be able to do things for you and take the place mm. of, again, as there were in a lot of cultures, slave classes. And that sense that if we can find or create intelligences that can work for us, we'll lead this like utopian life of leisure Mm-hmm. the Jetsons. You know, obviously they had their robot exactly. made as well. Yeah. Patterned on the stereotypical family of the 1940s, 1950s. And for a period of time, that did involve a servant figure in the household, a maid figure. So there was a certain sense of patterning the future on the past. You know, if this was the way to the good life, then perhaps we can do this with mechanical entities. I think you said something earlier about specifically the invention of robot. You've got to tie it into the 1920s. And Carol well, che-
1: that's a, yeah. well, Yeah, who's the name of the playwright whose name I always mispronounce? Carol Capek. Carol Capek, that's it.
0: Some people say Chapek, some people say Capek. Yeah. I haven't 100% decided which way I'm going myself. But
1: It's a play, Rossum's Universal Robots, and this mm. is the first mention of the word robots. I've never read the play. I, I don't mm. think anyone's read the play. It's only ever cited in relation. Oh, have you read it? I've read the play. Is it, is it good?
0: It's interesting to read it with contemporary eyes because the story mm. is now so familiar because it's basically a robot rebellion story that the factory workers are replaced by robots that then rise up and take over the world. So it feels almost sort of pastiche now, but it was the first attempt to describe this potential danger of replacing humans. And the word "roboti" robota, comes from the Czech word for serf or servant. So it's also a commentary on the industrialization of the working class and the situation there that Carol was looking at but then science fictionized with robotic entities.
1: So that's 1920s. So that's the first use of the word robot comes from this play, Rossum's mm. Universal Rossum's Universal Robots. Yeah. When did we actually build the first mechanical thing that we could look at and go, oh, look, there's a robot there?
0: Well, there's lots of attempts. So although the word robot, you can date to 1920s, Android turns up earlier. Automata turns up much earlier. Uh, 100 CE, the first term, automata. Yes, Egyptian inventor. Hero of Alexandria writes about how you could create automata that can do various tasks for us.
1: But this is the thing with inventions. Whatever the invention is, you can always go back in time and you know, Leonardo da yes. Vinci drew a picture of a helicopter. But he you know, And he a robot and knight did as well. Yes. He did something else I heard the other day, which was really, oh, a tank. That was it. Yeah. We were doing a program about tanks and he, he basically did everything. Just,
0: he did.
1: <laughs> yeah, be all right. Wait, so he designed a robot knight?
0: He did, yeah. But again, right. in the sense that he designed a tank, was it built? Was it functional? Was it practical?
1: I used to design but- robots when I was a kid at school in my exercise book and they were rubbish. <laughs> You know, no no Leonardo
0: da
1: Vinci, no. What did the robot knight do? Presumably did things that knights do, which is fight people.
0: Yes, I think. And as with the tanks, this idea of the automation of warfare. And I think possibly, you know, this is something that might have horrified him a little to think about what the potential was But here we are now in the contemporary scenario, we have drones automated lethal weapon systems.
1: Well, it does. It feeds into our kind of dystopian idea of robots, this idea that Mm. we have a sort of techno fear, don't we, of technology overtaking us. It's that, I think, that lack of control, isn't it, perhaps?
0: As I say, if you end up characterising humanity by one or two attributes, and in particular intelligence, if you start replicating that... There's a sense that some people might feel afraid of being knocked off the top of the Predator triangle, mm. right? So you have the apex intelligence. What happens when something comes along that's a lot smarter than you? We see it in very narrow events now. So, you know, Alpha Go can play the game of Go at an exceptional, super intelligent level, and that sends people into spirals of fear but it's not general intelligence.
1: No, well, that's the thing. We'll go on to mind, in inverted commas, in a bit. I want to just stick with bodies for the time being. So we've got all these sort of, in literature and in antiquity, these ideas of androids, automatons, mm. robots. So when did someone actually pick up a screwdriver and put something together? Because I read, you yeah. know, there's things like mechanical ducks and turks yes. and strange. And odd.
0: some are what I would term, and other people probably use this term as well, phobots. So fake, fake robots.
1: Take us through the history of phobots.
0: Well, so the term being F-A-U-X, robots, oh, I see. phobots, yeah. um, that some I automata were partially an attempt to replicate things that couldn't be replicated, but presented as though successful. So you talk about the digesting duck Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, So this fabulous bit of engineering and in some ways very successful. It was hugely popular. You know, it it was on display at Covent Garden and people would spend almost the equivalent of a week's wages to come see this this entity. A metallic duck that you could feed pellets and it would poop. So it was the digesting (laughs) duck. (laughs) I like that. For the wider audience, I'll use the word poop. But actually, if you, you, know, did a sideways slice through the thing, you could see that the excrement was held in a cabinet inside. It wasn't digesting. It wasn't taking nutrients and anything from the pellets it was being fed. It was just excreting something from another cabinet.
1: So it was a magic trick, essentially. Or essentially. Sort of a, con- a conjuring trick. And yes. did, were people fooled by it? Did people look at this? And was the idea mm. to actually convince people that this is a real robot in inverted commas that does something, reproduces a biological act,
0: there's debate about that, because if you look at Valkinson's diaries, and you know he talks about being sort of, you know a scientist experimenting with how these operations work, and he also created a, a human-looking flute player, and he was very obsessed with working out how lungs work and the flow of air into the instrument. So he was trying to find the practical ways of doing these things, but sort of jumping ahead of himself almost, in the sense with the duck, that he couldn't make it digest, but could make it look like it digested. So I tend to call that sort of manifested aspiration. That there's something you really, really want to be real, so you go to the extent of almost faking it to convince yourself as well. And obviously, audiences seeing these things would have been convinced. And there's the Mechanical Turk you mentioned as well, which
1: is- yeah, well, which is another a similar kind of thing, isn't it? Yeah. Well, it doesn't do poos, but it does well. other things.
0: <laughs> no, well, it did actually do poos because it, it was it was a human in a box. So the Mechanical Turk was a chess playing, looking very, you know, at the time, the stereotype of an Oriental gentleman. Mm. And you could go up and play chess against it. And it could also do, uh, I think it's called the Knight's Passage, where it's the move where you move the knight on every possible space on the board. This is by Wolfgang von Kemplin in the 1770s. And inside the box underneath the Mechanical Turk was a human who was moving all the parts. It's a puppet, basically. So yes, when you say, did it poop? It did because there, it was a phobot. There was a human inside the machinery.
1: It's funny. Why is it sort of chess and robots go together it's still? It's funny, like when I was a kid, I always imagined robots doing things around the house and sweeping up like in the Jetsons. <laughs> but actually for a robot to move around the world, the real world, is incredibly difficult. But it actually is. getting a robot to play chess, we were doing that in the nineteen. 19- 70s,
0: yes, you know we absolutely. had a
1: robot chess player, not with somebody inside, but just the algorithm. Yes,
0: so this is generally called Moravec's paradox. That in terms, oh, it's of, got a paradox name. It's, it's a paradox. So in terms of creating robotic entities to do things, intellectual tasks are actually easier than physical tasks, which is why, as you're right, playing chess in the 1970s, because chess is an intellectual task with a bounded space. And although millions of combinations of moves, there is a finite number. It has a boundary space. There's only Mm. so many things that can be done in chess. Whereas moving about a room with a changing situation, there may be humans in the room, there may be furniture, you know, they might actually get back to poop. This has been a problem (laughs) for Roombas that they don't recognize poop from pets on the floor. So they are working on improving robot hoovers, other brands are available other than Roomba, improving their ability to recognize poop on the floor, which is a difficult task. It's much more difficult than teaching an AI to play chess. So there's that difficulty. Did you know that the earliest condoms were made of animal guts and they were designed to be reused or that beans were once considered to be an aphrodisiac join me betwixt the sheets the history of sex scandal in society a new podcast from history hit where i kate lister ask the questions about the stuff we didn't learn in history lessons or sex ed We'll be bed hopping around different time periods, from ancient civilizations to the Middle Ages to Renaissance and early modern, right up to now. Listen and subscribe to Betwixt the Sheet now, wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Okay, so we've got these phobots. Is there a robot one that we can look back in history and go, well, you know, forget about phobots. We're now into something mm. that looks like. I mean, I think of things like there was a Honda robot, in, Asimo. You know, Asimo, that's the one. But there was stuff before that. I mean, there was yeah. like, well, there was Eric the robot. I Eric. seem to remember. Yeah, from, from the-,
0: the 1920s, 1928,
1: I think. Can you pin? Have you got a favourite candidate for robot one?
0: I mean, it's difficult because as you say, this history is so entangled with our assumptions about their capabilities as well. Um, So even Eric, which was, Eric is a really interesting story. So it's 1928 and it's the exhibition of the Society of Model Engineers. And the Duke of York, who was then George VI, was due to come and open it, but he cancelled Possibly, you know, he didn't like public speaking, if you're familiar with the story of George the Sick. And the organiser of the exhibition said, well, if he's not going to come, then we're going to have a tin man. Or how do you describe Make a man of tin to replace him. And then they created Eric. But Eric was very basic, didn't do very much beyond sort of wave a hand. But, that, you know, for royalty, that's, that's all you need. That's, that's all you that's need. All you, so, <laughs>
1: that's
0: it. That is it. So very, very basic Automated systems of moving hands, nodding, speaking—it's a very slow, ongoing process. And even mm. now, a lot of the very, the very famous examples of robots that uh, are said to be able to interact with humans to answer their questions are responding in very automated ways, rather than sort of passing out the conversation or understanding what the words mean. Yes even the most contemporary robots but Asimo yes Asimo I saw Asimo in uh, the Tokyo Museum for Science and Emerging Technology where he puts on a little show for the kids and the families and that again is a very automated prescribed show of it does this it does that and sequence it's not
1: thinking it's not no. it doesn't have any intelligence it's mm. programmed like <clears throat> i used to have this thing called big tracks and it was like a kind of remote well it wasn't remote control but you programmed it and it would go forward a certain amount Mm. of distance and then you could program it to do things but so it wasn't in any way intelligent i'm really interested in this idea of the uncanny valley which Mm. i'm sure some of the listeners will have heard of this idea of how we perceive things that aren't human but look a bit like human there's an interesting graph which describes our reaction to them one from excitement to kind of revulsion can you explain a little bit more about how the uncanny valley works
0: Yeah, the term comes out of a paper written by Masahiro Mori in the 1970s, where he had recognized in a very sort of ethnographic way that there were these responses that we have to, let's call them the nearly human, but not quite. So he used examples, not just robots, but he talked about synthetic dolls, zombies, any entity that was close to human, but not quite. And he drew this graph of our reactions that he had observed and we sort of have a sense of familiarity up to a certain point, And then suddenly with the closeness to human but not quite increasing, it suddenly dips down dramatically into this feeling of unease and uncanny. And he was drawing on Freud as well. And Freud had drawn on previous psychologists of this sense of the, the unreal, the uncanny, the disturbing that comes from interacting with synthetic beings. And and the uncanny valley then becomes this very popular term. And and particularly, I think, in the recent past where we've had more CGI characters Mm. in films. And some of those, it's very subjective. It hits people at different levels. But for some people, you know, uh, various CGI faces and expressions on characters' faces just hit that uncanny moment and we feel unease, disturbance. And some anthropologists have argued that this is, you know, related to the dangers of disease if we encountered another human who looked unwell in particular ways had a paler face you know acted differently that would set off this unease so we would stay away and protect ourselves from any contagion so there's various theories like that sort of milling around this idea mm. of the uncanny and where it comes from
1: and presumably artists and writers have played on that idea when mm. when dealing with kind of robots i mean i'm thinking of mary shelley and frankenstein mm. And I suppose things like Terminator and, and Metropolis is the other yes. one, this idea of kind of breathing Metropolis, the Fritz Langville, breathing life into well, Maria it was yeah. in that case. But it does, it affects us deeply, mm. don't we? We find it quite odd.
0: I'm a fan of Arnold Schwarzenegger, but he did have an unusual body type. Yeah. You know, he'd worked on it. He had a certain charisma, a certain presence that he brought to the role of the Terminator, the 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 actual specific android form. And I think that really worked quite well because he was, you know, the relentless predator.
1: Of it's the re- yeah, yeah, the relentlessness of it all. That, yeah. that it doesn't stop. A bit like kind of Daleks as well, which look nothing like humans, but they, I don't know where Daleks fit in the Uncanny Valley, but there's something well, really, yeah. well, they're not now, but when you were a kid, there was something particularly unnerving about the Dalek. Maybe it was the voice. Maybe it was that relentless tone of voice. I don't know.
0: Yeah, I think I think that's certainly an aspect of it. They don't really fit entirely into the scheme because they're not designed to look very human-like. They're actually designed to look like Sufi dancers with their their swirling skirts. That was one of the inspirations. Really? Yeah, but they don't strike as human-like. So the uncanny is probably more in the disturbance of voice, Mm. that they do speak to their victims, but it's all kind of roboticized and trilling and... And they speak in very specific ways. So it's that closeness of voice, but not quite where it brings out the uncanny.
1: I suppose when we think about robots now, anyone who's watched Boston Dynamic mm. videos, Boston Dynamics company in Boston, I think, think surprisingly, so. <laughs> they build these extraordinary machines now. Mm. There was one famously a few years ago called Big Dog, which I remember, which uncannily did look and, and sort of walk like a dog, mm. but without a head. And there was something really creepy just because it was so realistic the way it worked. And now you look at their robots that they build and they do... Unbelievable things. They're not thinking robots. I mean, they have a degree of autonomy, I suspect. But talk us through the kind of modern Boston Dynamics kind of robot.
0: What's interesting about the Boston Dynamics robots is that there is a certain presentation again that's going on with the videos that you see. So you don't get to see the videos where they fail to leap. You don't get to see the videos where there is someone with a controller because I've seen pictures where that's happening. So again, there's a presentation of what they're capable of, but they are very impressive in some of the aspects that they've managed to, as I mentioned, the Moravec paradox that doing physical things is very difficult because you have to have spatial awareness, you have to have... A version of vision. You have to have some form of machine vision. You have to recognize what a door is to understand how to open a door. All these elements are sort of coming together. But again, there's a sort of glossiness to how they're presented that kind of skims over some of the points of which there might have been problems as well. But they, I mean, as, a, as someone who studies specifically people's hopes and fears, as soon as there's a new boss town, ta- boss, I say boss town sometimes because there's another company called Corridor Crew who do CGI versions where they they call them Boston Dynamics videos, where they sort of push the envelope on the reactions, and they CGI the robots, so they're doing scarier things. But the Boston Dynamics videos, uh, every time one of those is released, you see online people going, "This is the end, you know. This is how you get Skynet. We're yes. doomed. This four-legged robot can open a door. How can we possibly hide? We're in trouble." And that's a very interesting reaction.
1: Yeah. Well, let's talk about fear and our dystopian worlds that we conjure up and mm. we think about. Robots. And Of course, we think about Asimov, don't we? We think about the rules, Asimov's yes. laws of robotics, are there to protect us. Just quickly mm. take us through.
0: I can almost do it verbatim because I don't
1: <laughs> you've done everyone else to do it. Oh, I'm really so, sorry.
0: That's no, fine. You it's can fine. just
1: yeah. If you do X Y Z, Bob's yeah, your uncle. So in
0: 1942, Asimov, amongst all his short stories, wrote one called Run Around, and he laid out his three laws of robotics that in his science fiction world he was describing you know, set up the parameters for all the robots can do, and they are hierarchical. So the first okay. is more important than the second, is more important than the third. Huh. So first law, a robot may not injure a human or through inaction allow a human to come to harm. Second law, a robot must obey humans at any time unless it would conflict with the first law. And finally, every robot must protect their own existence, except obviously when it conflicts with the second and then the first laws in that hierarchical order.
1: The great thing about having rules like that is that they're the great foil for plot writers in in sci-fi movies, because of course the rule will break down. Something like Ex Machina, which was quite an interesting, relatively recent robot movie.
0: Yes. That's the one that often when people ask me my favourite robot movie, they expect me to say Ex Machina. And I do love Alex Garland, his other TV series devs as well. I've written about a bit.
1: Um, I liked Ex Machina. Why didn't you like Ex Machina? You're uh, allowed to not like it.
0: That I dislike it hugely. It's just not my favourite. I think one of my problems are with it is the bro culture that it's sort of picking at, but also taking advantage of demonstrating sexy lady robots as well. I like to be a bit of a troll and say my favourite, to just disturb people who expect me to be a bit more highbrow, my favourite mm. robot film is Short Circuit.
1: Short Circuit's excellent. Yeah. Wizard of Oz, it's good. as a yeah. robot movie.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know? Do not look behind the curtain. You'll see the human in the machine.
1: Oh, my God. I'd never thought of it like that. Yeah. yeah. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. And that's yeah. exactly goes back to our mechanical Turk and our crapping ducks,
0: The phobots, and pho-bots everywhere.
1: I love The Wizard of Oz for all kinds of reasons, mm. but I'd never really thought of it in those terms before. Mm. What's the scariest robot? Uh,
0: there was one I saw when I was a kid and I'll have to look it up. It's like from a film called something like Saturn V or Jupiter mm. something. And Mm -hmm. it's just a murderous robot and it kills some dogs. It was just staying at my grandmother's and she let me watch it because she didn't know any better and it traumatised me.
1: What was that robot? It was like a kind of weird geometric shape that kept unfurling. It was called like Demon Seed.
0: Oh yes, Demon Seed is a... Do you remember? Is that a robot? Yeah, that's a robot that impregnates a woman. Very weird. Yeah, Yeah.
1: Jesus, I remember that. That gave me the willies.
0: Yeah, I remember that
1: one. Don't watch that for (laughs) God's sake, people. Let me just ask you about sort of minds and AI. We're all familiar to an extent with AI, which all people say, oh, AI is going to change the world. It already has changed the world. Mm. I mean, I think about things like, we mentioned chess playing robots. Mm. And I remember when Kasparov, the chess player, I think he got beaten by, what was the robot? Deep Blue, I think it was called. Was that right? The chess robot? Yeah. And everyone was like, my God, this is a kind of moment of where AI is going to take over the world. And then AlphaGo, you mentioned earlier on, was the other one, which is a game Mm -hmm. which is even more complex than chess. And it beat the world AlphaGo champion. Where are we with sort of AI? And are we going to join AI? into the body of a robot and get something extraordinary?
0: Well, so in terms of our goals for AI, games playing has obviously been a big part of that story because, as I say, you have games with particular bounded spaces. It makes it easier to set parameters and set up the winning scenario, basically. And since AlphaGo, uh, companies like Google DeepMind have carried on looking at different ways to play games with AI agents. And in terms of embodied AI, I mean, that, that was one of the earliest aims for robotics, to have a comprehensive intelligence within the system that could do all the things that were required of it. So we have many examples of attempts at interactive AI-based robots. So ASIMO, you've mentioned already, and I said the example of ASIMO at the museum is just doing a routine, but the aims originally were for it to be much more responsive. And it's kind of moved into this space of being a bit of a spectacle. But attempts like Sophia, the Hanson robot that is claimed to be able to interact with people with advanced AI, but is a lot of the time responding to very set questions.
1: Are we talking about the idea of, of achieving a general intelligence rather than a, mm. just a sort of programmed thing? Yeah. I mean, I think of the AlphaGo, I, I remember in the news when that happened, they were saying, oh, well, AlphaGo, it did all the rules, but it did something really crazy that was mm-hmm. slightly a bit more artistic that the, uh, it wasn't the meant to do. But it
0: so-called divine move. This whole thing became hugely mythologized at the time. I mean, I was watching the match. I was seeing the kind of responses on Twitter at the same time. So it's thought that at a particular point during one of the games, AlphaGo played a move that so disturbed Lisa Dole, who it was playing, that he left the room if you actually look at the sequence of events, it doesn't happen like that at all. He sort of left the room earlier for a cigarette break and people kind of <laughs> conflated the two things.
1: Right. So
0: this divine move was a move that was really unexpected because a Go as a game has thousands of years of history. It has so many masters who've kind of shaped the story of what is the best approach. And when AlphaGo played a move that was outside of that kind of popular approach people reacted, you know, this is unexpected. This is not what we'd see as a beneficial move to play. But it was always there within the data set, right? Because as I say, it's a bounded game. There are a certain number of millions of permutations of moves, billions even, but it's there within the potential space. So it just Hmm. did something that it could do. When we talk about artificial general intelligence. So it was
1: grunt work rather than a real creative leap.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's the argument. Because it had already played millions of games against itself in its learning processes, it wasn't that it was spontaneously doing something that it thought was creative. It Mm. wasn't thinking, it was within the move space that was possible. But this sort of got overblown into the sense of a divine move, of a, a kind of paradigm shift in the playing of Go and how it would shape the game going forward and change things.
1: This is a test for you. Who said this? This is something <laughs> about AI. AI is the future. It comes with colossal opportunities, but also threats that are difficult to predict. Whoever becomes the leader in this sphere will be the ruler of the world. Uh,
0: okay. 2017,
1: someone said that. Who did say
0: uh, that. It's either Stephen Hawking or it's a politician.
1: It is a politician. If it's a
0: politician. Then I think it's, is it Putin?
1: It is Putin. There go. <laughs> wow, that was, there you go. I just, that was a sort of topical yeah. AI cry. I just discovered that today. my like, blimey. Yes. Listen, we're going to have to do, we're running out of time. But we're mm. going to have to do a separate, a whole separate episode on AI because mm. it's such a massive topic. I just want to get your thoughts on the future of robots as we see them. So in my mind, Boston Dynamics, they seem to be at the sort of mm. apex of robot design. Maybe they're not. Maybe it's all just, they're kind of lots of showboating. But am I going to get a robot that's going to empty my dishwasher? No, I'll just do it myself.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you could. Our priorities have
1: changed since the 1970s. Yeah, I think that's the thing.
0: And you have to remember the dishwasher itself is basically a robot. It's just that when things become successful, they don't have that same glamour anymore. We ignore them. The Roomba is a robot. People are less excited about Roomba's the AI assistant on your phone. It's there. It's ubiquitous. You might talk to it regularly or you might decide not to have one at all. So it's in Mm. a sense what we get used to becomes invisible. So once we solve particular problems in artificial intelligence, it's then not really termed artificial intelligence anymore. It's just part of the software and the hardware that we're used to. But also, if you wanted something to unload your dishwasher, you'd need something almost as large as the dishwasher. So there's a certain efficiency problem there.
1: I don't mind. (laughs) I want my robot. I remember my mum when I was a kid, she was buying a new car, and there was the Vauxhall maestro mm. and it had like a talking thing in it yes and it was i told you to do your seatbelt up it was like mm-hmm. a really really early this is like the 1970s really really early talking thing and it was at the same time that night rider was on yes. was david hasselhoff yes and so that was Runs for me i was well. like it's the future now i hate them i hate any <laughs> bit of technology that beeps at me or talks to me or anything i i want to take a mallet to it beth thank you so much for chatting and taking the time to talk to us a wonderful little whistle stop tour of the history of robots mm. come back on and we'll talk about the history of other things because you've, you've got your research is so fascinating you <laughs> touch on all kinds of really interesting things so i'd love you to come back on and, and i'd love to come back more.
0: and carry on just chattering away that'd be
1: fun we could do that talk about poop again <laughs> talk about poop in various different guises <laughs> <laughs> Okay, that is it for this episode. Huge thanks to Beth for stopping by. Hope you enjoyed it. I hope you don't have nightmares. And I also hope that you subscribe to the podcast series and listen to all of our other episodes. There'll be new ones every Wednesday and every Sunday. And don't forget, if you have an invention story or an idea that you'd like me to investigate, get in touch via Twitter or telepathy or stop me in the street and we will add your idea to the list. I will see you soon. While I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive and new episodes ad-free, along with hundreds of history documentaries to watch, download our app across Apple App Store, Google Play and smart TV platforms. Follow the link in the show notes or go to historyhit.com slash subscribe. There is thousands of hours. Of history on there including a documentary on science in the middle ages with seb falk and also one with me talking about the secret history of the space race as a patented listener you get a special gift if you use the code patented at the checkout you get 50 percent off your first three months that's patented for 50 percent off your first three months and if you're an apple listener you can subscribe for new ad-free podcast episodes within the apple app